And so the big question for me is, is this a vitamin or an aspirin? Is this something that people are willing to pay for, right? Product market fit, when I hear that phrase, it's a text expander in my head that says, I've built something people want and are willing to pay for. Paul Graham has famously said, the hardest part of being in a startup is building something people want. And if you build something people want, boom, that's it, right? Success follows. This is Startups with the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. This is a show that you listen to if you're a bootstrapped or mostly bootstrapped startup founder. You want to grow your business faster, you're ambitious, but you don't necessarily want to grow that business at the cost of the rest of your life. You don't want to sacrifice your family, your relationships, your freedom in order to build an amazing and life-changing company. Thanks for joining me again this week. Before we dive into listener questions, we have some really good listener questions. And of course, the audio and video have gone to the top of the stack. Before we dive into that, I want to mention that MicroConf is going on tour. We have MicroConf locals coming up in October. I'll be in Atlanta in November. We're in Austin. And then TBD, we're looking at Amsterdam, Chicago, Denver, and New England in early 2023. If any of these cities are of interest to you, these are our MicroConf local events where it's like three hours in an afternoon where I connect with a successful founder. For example, I just spoke with Rand Fishkin last week in Seattle, and I'll be talking with Ben Chestnut, founder of MailChimp in Atlanta, and then Jason Cohen, founder of WP Engine in Austin. And other guests, you know, TBD for the, for the future ones. But these are three-hour events where the focus is really getting a group of founders in a room and helping them connect with one another. If you're interested in any of those cities, some tickets are already on sale for the events that we have nailed down for Atlanta and Austin. And then for future events, if you're not already on the MicroConf mailing list, head to microconf.com and uh, get on that so that we will be in touch when these events roll out. Our first question of the day is a quick one from Dexter. He says, I'm a new listener. What episodes should I start with to get up to speed? And it's a good question, right? Because we're 620-ish episodes into this podcast. Plus, I think there's at least another 50 unnumbered episodes in there. So realistically approaching 700. Two places I would start. Number one, go to startupsfortherestofus.com and look for the greatest hits link in the header. We've just updated that. We have, I think, 20 or 30 shows in that greatest hits. And we redo that every six to 12 months and add new episodes and remove old ones. So that's a good place to start. The other place is while you're at startupsoftherestofus.com, enter your email address and you're going to get two never before released shows. One is called Eight Things You Must Know When Launching Your SaaS. The other is 10 Things You Should Know As You Scale Your SaaS. So one is for the early stages. One is you pick product market fit, you're starting to scale. Those come in audio as well as a written format that's more of a guide. And those are evergreen lessons that I think every founder should know as they're building their SaaS company. So thanks for that question, Dexter. And if you are listening and looking to get up to speed, hopefully that helped you as well. Our next question is a video question from Adam on transitioning from free to fee. Hey Rob, uh, Adam Dusky here out of Madison, Wisconsin area. Um, about a year and a half ago, my dad was running a bike challenge at Kimberly Clark, a Fortune 500 company, so a lot of employees, and he was doing it on a Google Sheet, and it ran through a Google form where you go for a bike ride, and then at the end of the week, you count up all your miles and submit it, 
and uh, what it is is a competition between all the different KC locations, so like Brazil, different locations in the U.S., etc. Anyways, to make a long story short, we made a website, a friend and I made a website um, to integrate this through Strava, so no more manual input. People just log their rides in Strava, and it gets published. The challenge has grown from 80 people that log the ride when we use the Excel sheets to our last challenge was 496 employees and friends of employees logged rides during the May challenge. And then eventually it ended up getting too much work. We had a lot of support to do. We enjoyed doing it, but we sent a proposal for them to pay for it um, with some additional features and prizes we could include. They didn't take us on our offer. They said maybe for next year they could, but I'm just curious how you would have approached this, um, providing a service for free and then attempting to transition it into a paid service. Um, would love to hear your thoughts. Really enjoy the podcast and appreciate all the value we've gotten from it. Thank you. Hey, Adam, thanks for the question. This is a fun and interesting case study, I think. So a couple things. One, I want to go off topic real quick and say, this is such a cool idea to, to build with no code. Like I instantly thought, oh, I'd build this in an Airtable or, or use Bubble or something, you know. This is like the perfect example of a tool that I don't think needs full-blown custom software to code something this simple. That's not your question, but it is something, you know, for you or for, for other listeners to hear that when we talk about no code serving a purpose and being able to build an MVP or to run certain types of businesses off of, this feels like one that could probably be done with little to no custom code. Aside from that, though, your, your question is, how would I have gone about it? And frankly, probably the same way you did. I, th- I think it's great that you asked for money and you're not just providing the perpetual service for free. But it, you know, it didn't work so far, right? And so the big question for me is, is this a vitamin or an aspirin? Is this something that people are willing to pay for, right? Product market fit, when I hear that phrase, it's a text expander in my head that says, I built something people want and are willing to pay for. Paul Graham has famously said, the hardest part of being in a startup is building something people want. And if you build something people want, boom, that's it, right? Success follows, which he's right. That's like the first step. And I've always, ever since I read that essay, and this is a probably 14, 15 year old essay, I thought to myself, it's actually, you need to build something people want, which is really hard. Then you need them to be willing to pay for it. And you need to be able to find those people at a rate or at a cost that means that you can grow. Because if there's only 100 customers in the world, or you can only find one a month and they pay you $5, like the economics don't work out. So there's a lot of things that have to be in place, even in this kind of simple, broken down, bulleted version of product market fit. Build something people want, willing to pay for it, and are you able to reach them and close them in an economically viable fashion? And at this point, you haven't proven any of those. Well, I guess you've built something people want, but we haven't proven that they're willing to pay for it. And so without having some type of urgent need, if they just said, I will use it next year, that's not a great sign. I do see a lot of free tools built that then try to monetize and people don't want to pay for them. I actually built feedshot.com years ago. I don't even know if that homepage is still up. Looks like it is. It's a static web page. It hasn't submitted 132,000 submissions and then it just went away. Look at that copyright 2015. This is amazing. So I built this in like, I gotta be 2003. And this is almost 20 years ago. This is gonna sound so ridiculously dated, like I'm speaking in old English, not even in, uh, in modern English. But 
a blog is a weblog. And when you launched one years and years and years ago, there weren't crawlers. There were a bunch of directories that you could submit to. And there were, at a certain point, there were like 90 different directories. And so you could submit them by hand, you could hire a VA. I just wrote a bunch of code, right? It was easy enough to hit. It wasn't even REST APIs at the time. I'm pretty sure I was just scraping and actually looking at the forms and then posting to an endpoint. Too much technical info, TMI, I know. But I had like 90 of them in there. And I built it and launched it for free. And people, it was getting tons of traffic. People were loving it. And then I was like, well, cool. I want to make some money from this. And so there wasn't enough traffic to actually make money from advertising. So I was like, well, I'm going to start charging for it. So I was like, $9.99 per submission. And like, no one did it. So I just kept lowering the price, $4.99, And it was kind of cool. I could see the price elasticity, right? I could see as I lowered it, I did get more submissions. And I think at the time, I had it somewhere between two ninety nine and four ninety nine when there were like still fifty of these directories. So these directories just slowly started closing because there's no reason for them all to be there. So over time they would just stop working. So I'd start peeling them out, and over time I did have to lower the price. And the last price it looks like uh, I was using was a dollar ninety nine, and so I would make fives of dollars on this website each month. And it's because it it was not an aspirin. It was a nice tab. It was a tool I had built something people wanted, but really nobody was willing to pay for. And so, you know, I don't know if that's the case with what you built, Adam, but I definitely see like the B2C type stuff, the fitness trackers allow people to decide on a particular schedule or manage a, you know, a betting pool, just kind of a casual office stuff. Let's figure out where we're going to lunch. These are like cool, interesting, neat little viral tools, but I kind of think of these things as almost like utilities that people consider are going to be free. And until you figure out like a real, almost has to be a business case for spending money on something like this from a business's perspective. And so why would they write a, you didn't mention your pricing, but a thousand dollar, a $10,000, you know, whatever that amount is, there's a lot of other places they can spend that money. And so your question was, how would I have gone about it? Probably the same way you did. What I would do now though, is I'd be thinking my biggest concern is, is anyone willing to pay for this? Or should we release, if we're going to build this thing in Airtable or whatever, release it free, put it on product hunt and just make it kind of a, a community service almost to where it's a free tool and we use it to kickstart the next thing. Or in the meantime, are we doing some cold email, maybe some some type of light marketing, you know, I don't know if you're doing pay-per-click ads or or what it is. If people are searching for something like this, obviously you could do SEO or you could go to Captera or look at, at Google terms. If they're not searching for it, then what is it? I mean, it really, it does become more of a cold outreach thing, which is fine. But you have to ask yourself, you know, is is that what I want to be doing? And if it is, then that's what you should start doing, is cold outreach, Fortune 5000, Fortune 10,000, you know, whatever companies you can get and say, we have this tool, are you interested? Oh, and I think the other way is obviously, I bet there are sites, you know, that have listings of these, I don't know that this, you didn't call it a bike-a-thon, but that's what it reminds me of, right? It's a bike challenge. Are there sites that list these kinds of things anywhere? And can you get in touch and be like, hey, I do have a tool that manages it and figure out, I think a lot of people, they're raising money for charity. I have my own presuppositions that I'm concerned that no one wants to pay for this, but that doesn't matter because I'm not the end customer. And in fact, when I get asked this question, a founder will email me and say, I have this idea or I built this thing. What do you think? And I always think you should talk to your customers because I'm not your customer. And if I am supposed to be your customer, I'll tell you, hey, I would buy this or I would not. But for me to weigh in on the viability of this idea, really not having much knowledge of the market is not super helpful. And so that's where I'd be leaning is, can you go talk to customers and if you can't, if you can't find any customers now, how are you going to find them, you know, once you have a full-blown product built? So I appreciate you writing in, Adam. I hope that was helpful. 
Our next question is an audio question from Taylor about customer interviews as a service for indie founders. Hi, Rob. My name is Taylor. I recently was laid off from a tech company here in Canada, and unfortunately, it seems to be the ongoing trend. So I had a question for you related to marketing that I think might be potentially interesting to some of your audience members, although it does skew a little bit further away from the indie founder type demographic and more to the marketing side. But at my past role, I was doing a lot of interviews with SaaS founders and trying to understand uh, their motivation for selling their business. And this kind of got me thinking about doing my own freelance job, but instead doing customer interviews as a service. So I'm just curious if you think there's demand for that from startup founders who are potentially too busy or just don't want to actually directly talk to their customers, or if there's a potential pivot that you could envision that would also be good. So uh, yeah, let me know. My name is Taylor Cartavicious and uh, hoping to get some real good feedback from you. Thanks. Hey, Taylor, it's a good question. So I like one part of this and I don't like the other. The first is customer interviews as a service. I think it's a fantastic idea. And in fact, I know some companies that do this as part of broader agency you know, marketing packages. And I love the idea of it. I've seen pricing for of a few thousand dollars up into the mid to high four-figure range, right? Five thousand, six, seven thousand, depending on the deliverables, where you know there's a lot lot that could be done here. But I think that as a founder myself, I would one hundred percent hire this out. And I know that some tiny seed founders would want to know more about their customers, but don't want to you don't want to learn the nuts and bolts of it. And so if you can pay someone three, four, five grand to do this, I think it's interesting. That's the part I like. What I don't like is you say for indie founders. Indie founders, I think you mean like bootstrap founders, indie makers, indie hackers. You know, a lot of especially early stage folks, they still think like the consumer mindset. And so they're going to be very price sensitive. So I don't like the niching as a service for indie founders. I think you could start it there. My guess is you're going to have people wanting to pay you hundreds of dollars to do quite a bit of work. And so maybe if you do that to get your first few contracts to get the experience, not the experience of doing the interviews because it sounds like you already have that experience, but just to get your name out there, it's easy marketing, right? You post to indie hackers, you let people know in, in MicroConf Connect. You have to be careful here because you don't want to seem, you know, the soliciting stuff isn't going to go over well. But if you do, you're like, I'm a software founder. I have good experience with this. If anyone's interested, like almost offering it, you know, as a low cost service, I think it's it's interesting. I want to be really clear to please don't come in general to MicroConf Connect and, and pitch new services. But I do think that this is kind of an interesting uh, interesting idea. Reddit, like the Reddit SaaS, Reddit startups, Reddit entrepreneurship. Any of these could be interesting for trying to figure out, you know, what is that price point? If you do build a brand, then you have price flexibility and you can expand the price as you go on. But do I think it's an interesting service? Yes. I would not make it a subscription. I mean, it really is kind of a one-time thing. Like every year or two, we do this with MicroConf, where we do a group of customer interviews, jobs to be done interviews usually, to learn more about the new people, you know, the older folks, not old in age, but who have been involved in MicroConf for longer, folks who only come to in-person events, folks who only consume online, just to get an idea of what people are looking for. So love the idea. Thanks for writing in, Taylor. My next voicemail is from Andre on making the jump from software to manufacturing. Hey, Rob. This is Andre, listening from Brazil. My question is, coming from a software background, how would I make the jump towards founding a manufacturing company? I really believe we can bring our knowledge to the industrial sector. I know this is off, but I'm really curious what you think. Cheers. Andre, this is a tough one. I mean, honestly, if someone were to come to me and say, I've been doing software, I want to 
go into manufacturing, I would probably say don't. And I know that's tough. That's not a great answer. But I'm not going to be able to tell you how to make the jump because I've never done it. What I do know is I have friends, acquaintances, founders who I've advised who have been in software for years and we forget that we have the best business model in the world. And that's subscription, recurring revenue with very low cost to serve customers and no physical inventory to manage with a huge upfront cost with refunds and shipping and stuff getting lost in the mail and and pallets of things being on a ship. There's the logistics and the warehousing and the employee count and the margins. It's just a, it's a completely different world. And so we have this amazing luxury of being in software and having these incredible margins with recurring revenue. I could not imagine going into any other space like manufacturing or hardware or, look, I ran an e-commerce company back from, I can't remember the dates, I'm going to mess it up, 2008 to 2010 or 11. And it resold, it ranked really well in Google for beach-related stuff like beach towels. And I did several thousand dollars a month. It was a nice portfolio piece that I had combined to make a full-time income with the other things I had. And oh my gosh, per dollar earned, that site was by far the biggest headache. I wasn't even doing fulfillment, it was drop shipped. But it was there was so much crap. People wanted refunds and then they'd have to ship it back. So then <laughs> these beach towels, they got shipped back and it's like, I don't really want these. And I would eat, I'd eat money on those. Stuff getting lost in the mail, stuff not getting there fast enough. And people complaining that we missed a birthday. The margins were incredibly low because I had this huge cost of goods sold compared to what I was uh, you know, used to. And there were no subscription revenue. It was just, it was like one headache after another. And I'm not saying every e-commerce business is that, but it definitely gave me a taste of the other side of where I didn't want to go anymore. And at the time, I had a productized service I ran. I was still doing a little bit of consulting. I stopped in 2008, so it was right around that time. I had several ebooks and kind of info products. I had a SaaS. I had a, a job board for electricians. I had all, ki- all kinds of things, you know. Uh, oh, I, was, I wrote a book as well. I had all kinds of things that were making money. And that e-commerce site, it just stuck out as such a sore thumb for me. And so that was one of the first things that I sold as I started kind of divesting myself and, and focusing before I made a big run up, basically dove deep into SaaS. That was part of the reason was I realized, you know, info products are fine, but the one-time sale is a pain. I didn't feel like it was, it just wasn't as interesting as, as building a software company. And it wasn't going to scale in the same way. And similarly, you know, e-commerce had, had its own trouble. So that really is my advice. It's that I can't tell you how to make the jump because I haven't done it. But personally, I think you're going to, when you jump over, I think you might be taking for granted all the amazing things that we have with this business model. And I would be wary of of diving in, especially thinking like, I have this knowledge, because you, you probably have maybe some marketing knowledge, online marketing knowledge, and of course, you know technology very well. And so we, we can think, well, I'm going to come into this space and I can out-innovate them because their software is crap and they don't know how to market. You might be able to. My question is, is it worth doing? Is it worth getting in there based on the margins that you're going to make from these products? Would the time just be better spent in the software space, even though you're not going to be able to innovate as much because there are other people doing it, I just can't let go of the fact that we have the best business model in the world and I would have a hard time walking away from that. So I don't know if that was helpful or not, Andre, but I do appreciate the question. Our next question is another voicemail. Voicemails and video questions go to the top of the stack. If you go to startupsfortherestofus.com, click ask a question. You could submit either one of those or email them to questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. This question is from Yuri on priorities for marketing versus development. 
Hi Rob, this is Yuri. I'm building a platform for developers on the side. And uh, I'm lucky I don't need to do any development on it already because I hired a developer. The question I have is that how much percentage of monthly recurring revenue or some budget or time is reasonable to spend on marketing versus development? Because it's a development tool, there is endless possibilities to do integration, so I can dedicate 100% of efforts there. But still, I understand that marketing is a very essential part um, of the business, so it's a dilemma which priorities should I go after. In terms of the numbers, we are around seven, 8,000 MRR, so we are still pretty early, and that is two years in. Thank you very much for all you do. I really enjoy your podcast. I like this question. And this is one that has, unfortunately, a lot of answers. I've seen reports, they're in SaaS industry reports that ask this question, right? And what's interesting to me is the range is really wide. And so if I weren't to Google any of those and just go off the top of my head, I would say in the early days of building your company, and I mean like sub 20K MRR, sub 50K MRR, well, maybe like sub 20K MRR, I think 50 plus percent should be towards marketing and sales. Yeah, as much as you can. And I think as product people, we're going to tend to want to minimize that. But putting that effort and 50%, I mean, is time plus money investment, right? And then that goes that has to go down over time, I think, as you build the brand and as you maybe compete with bigger players in the space. Now, it depends a lot on it depends a lot on the space you're entering, because if you're building an email service provider, you have to put a ton of investment into the product just to get feature parity and to have kind of the table stakes feature. So in the early days, maybe it's weighed more towards product than I was saying. In most spaces, if you get in market, you build a brand and you have enough to get a wedge in, I do think you should be spending a lot more marketing than than you think. A couple places that we can link to in the show notes, one is SaaS Capital did a blog post spending benchmarks for private B2B SaaS companies. And they say across these companies doing at least 1 million in ARR that the median percent of ARR spending on marketing is 9 or 10%, and then spent on sales is 18%. And so if you combine, you know, if we combine those, we say almost 30%. An article from before.io called How Much Do SaaS Companies Spend on Marketing? They say the average SaaS company spends between 15 and 25% of revenue on marketing. Now, this does not include sales. And then there's a quote from Thomas Tungus. He's quoted in BigDropInc.com's blog post, How Much Should Your SaaS Marketing Budget Be? Where he says, during the first three years, SaaS companies often spend anywhere from 80 to 120% of their revenue on sales and marketing. So he's combining it and they spend more than revenue because, of course, he only deals with funded companies because he's a venture capitalist. But then it plateaus around 50% from year five on. That's really interesting. And these that's at scale, right? I mean, these are venture scale companies where you're a million and over. And so the answer is it kind of depends. And it depends on the space you're in. It does depend. It's like bootstrap versus funded and bootstrap versus venture funded. You know, it depends on how beefy your product has to be. But I do think it is really easy if you're an engineer who's building a product and you your first hire is an engineer to help you move faster. Suddenly you can have a team of five where you have like three technical people. And that's just way overweight. And that's way overweight technical talent. Unless you really need to be in a feature race, basically, and to, you know, to hit a point where you hit feature parity. I just think it can be a f- kind of a fool's errand and an easy trap to fall into to overbuild. So if a founder, like a bootstrap founder came to me and said, yeah, we're at 10 or 20K MRR and we're spending 10 to 15% or 20% of our top line revenue, 
on marketing and sales, I would say you're way too low. There has to be such a push in the early days to get out there and get in front of people and close deals because not only are you keeping yourself alive with the revenue, but you are learning with every deal because you're still so early. And while I wouldn't say 80 to 120%, I, it's funny, I, I, I know I fund companies, I still don't think in those terms you know, of spending more than ARR just on marketing. But it's, an, it's a really interesting way to think about it. Of, you know, as a bootstrapper, could you spend 75% of your error? Like, what would that even look like? You know, I like thought experiments like these actually, where even if I never take action on it, asking yourself the question, you know, taking an hour or two and asking yourself the question, you know, what would it, what would our business look like to 10x in the next 12 months? What would have to happen? And then just thought experiment from there. Like, we may not, I may not even try, this may be a bad idea. But to go through those experiments, I think, helps expand your thinking and can, can help you see things in a new way. Similarly, I think asking yourself, like, what would the company look like if we were to spend 70 or 80% of our ARR on marketing and sales? Does that mean we would have to raise funding? Or does it mean we would just back off on feature development for now? And, you know, product moves a little slower, but that's okay because we're closing a lot of deals. A lot of us build really interesting products that people want, and then we keep building and keep building and keep building. That's not always the right call. I think it's a trap I've fallen into, and I think it's, uh, I think it's one that is easy as a, a developer or a product person. So I think for the question, Yuri, that was a really, really interesting one. That was our final question for the day. If we're not connected on Twitter, I'm at Rob Walling. And again, I'm going to be at several MicroConf locals here in the, over the next six months. Head to microconf.com slash locals if you want to buy a ticket for Austin or Atlanta and get on the mailing list, microconf.com, if you want to hear about future locals that could be coming to your area. We're steadily making our way to 1,000 ratings around the world in Apple Podcasts. It'd be amazing if you could sneak in there and click that five-star button. Thank you, as always, for listening this and every week, whether you've been here for six or 600 episodes. This is Rob Walling signing off from episode 624. I'll see you next time.